Again, it's certainly a blessing and an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. Pray for me as Brother Gary mentioned in his prayer that today we might see the Lord high and lifted up. I want to begin reading this morning to you from the book of Exodus, chapter 34 and verse 14. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I very much enjoyed Brother Chris's sermons on the fundamentals of the faith, the articles of the faith, uh, of our faith, and his talking at the beginning of that, he did several messages about the nature and attributes of God. One of the attributes of God that so many today seem to refuse to even recognize is God's attribute of jealousy. God's attribute of jealousy. God is a jealous God. Our founding fathers, our, found, our nation's founding fathers, by the way, knew this. Um, that they knew that a truly Christian society cannot realistically coexist with the modern, secular, humanistic society we find ourselves in today. Literally, the two maintain a very, very different set of morals and principles. So much so that we can see society today, I believe, quickly devolving back to the time of the first century before the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene and turned the world upside down. Much of what we see going on in our society today is, is much like the pagan society of this world before Christ came along. And we seem to be devolving that way more and more. Back in, in that day, in that time, before Christianity set the world on fire, a lot of the things that we see happening today were commonplace back then. In fact, the, the, the rampant immorality, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the sins that are so prevalent in society today, especially uh, the, uh, the, the uh, sexual sins, a number of these things, back in that day, that was actually their religion. And today, it seems to be a coming the religion, so to speak, for so many more of us today in America. You see, Christianity is unique and that its entirety is revealed in a single book, the Bible. Everything from Christianity's extremely unpopular patriarchal society to its identification and condemnation of, of sin of all sorts, especially, especially sexual sins, to its, to its inherent exclusivity is anathema. It is anathema to a world that above all things seems to more and more celebrate diversity, tolerance, inclusion. Well, that is tolerance and inclusion of everything but Christianity. And a ever-changing relative morality. This seems, my beloved, to be the world that we are living in, the society that we're living in today. No, my beloved, in today's America, there's no place for a standard-bearing 
book. Nevertheless, God will not share his glory. Why? Because he's a jealous God. Paul says in Romans 4 and 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That will happen at the last day. Why? Because God is a jealous God. Now, for you and for me, and for all the elect, entire, universal family of God, this is a good thing. This is a good thing, my friends, that God is a, is a jealous God. You see, God has no envy. Jealousy and envy are not the same thing, okay? No, God is jealous for you. He's jealous for each and every one of you and has no intention of losing any of you to a devil's hell. Why? He's a jealous God. On the other hand, because God is a jealous God and because he will not share his glory with anyone and he will not share his glory with anything, when it comes to our worship of him, folks, he wants things done right. John chapter 4 and verse 23. John chapter 4 and verse 23. By the way, anyone who doesn't think that Christianity is exclusive in nature, in nature <laughs> hasn't read John 4 and 23. Jesus told that Samaritan at Jacob's well. By the way, Jesus was telling this to a Samaritan woman. Back in that day, the Samaritans had no dealing with the Jews or vice versa. In fact, Jews would travel around Samaria and never even go through it because they hated each other that much. Here, Jesus goes directly into Samaria and right to a Samaritan woman at, at Jacob's well, and he went to her exclusively, no one else. And he says here, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the God, the Father, in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Question this morning. How many of us, when we hear some, some bit of preaching and a message that, that might be a, a little off, or, or if we're hearing a message uh, from someone of a different order, it might sound a little unusual or strange to our ears, or, or if we see a, a practice in the church which seems a little, not only strange to us, but just a little bit off, how many of us will try and still glean some good out of that message, so to speak? Uh, sort of try to, as Brother Chris is, is wonderful about uh, quoting Sonny Piles, as Sonny Piles used to say, a little eat the chicken and throw away the bones type of attitude. Folks, I do that, and, and, and we all do that. It's good to take what we can out of any kind of message. It surely is. And that's fine for us. But God is not like us. He's not like you or I. My beloved, when it comes to our religion, when it comes to our theology, our doctrine, if you will, our form or our manner of worship, as well as, and this is important, as well as our purpose for such, God does not just eat the chicken and throw away the bones. 
No, no. When it comes to our worship, our order, our practice as a church, God examines it and God judges it. Moreover, and this is what so many seem to not understand about God, is if our worship service to him is found wanting in any manner, it may still please us. And there's a lot of worship service out there, my friends, that pleases a lot of people, but it will not please God. He wants it done right. God rejects it, and rightfully so, no matter what else may be right. Now that may seem harsh to you and to me, but for two words, thorough furnisher. You get in a conversation with people about these, remember those two words, thorough furnisher. What is it, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfectly furnished, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Thoroughly furnished, what does that mean? That means everything we need to know about God or godliness is found within the lids of this book. This scripture is a thorough furnisher. We don't need to know or, uh, any more about God than is right here between the, the lids of this book. Listen, folks, the pattern for God honoring and God accepting worship is not hidden at all. It's not hard to find. In fact, the New Testament epistles are not difficult to understand. It said that if you have a fifth grade reading level, you're pretty much good to go as far as understanding the Bible, truly. And yet, it seems difficult to adhere to it. That seems to be the issue, is adherence. It, 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 that, that pattern has proven difficult for so many through the ages of time who study and read this Bible. But it's a thorough furniture. If we want to know how we're supposed to worship God in a way that is not only pleasing to us, but acceptable to him, it's right here in the book, and especially in, in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. No, it's the, it, it, indeed today, we seem to come to a point so often in, in, in Christianity where, where many don't care if you can back it up with Bible. Their emotions, their desires, their, their, their feelings, they all override what Scripture says to the point where oftentimes many people are following not Christ, but their own selves. Folks, God did not write it down for us for no reason. He wants it done right. We're going to look at the, the results of improper worship this morning, if we can, for just a minute. Leviticus chapter 16. Turn with me there to the Old Testament. There's a song in our songbook that says, The God that lived in the older times is just the same today. That was never more true than it is today. You see, from the denomination world from its very, very beginnings has adhered to the premise that however one worships God is, is better than not worshiping at all. Remember, eat the chicken and throw away the bones. But God says not so. 
the way in which and manner, my beloved, in which we worship God today is very, very important to God. Why? Because, as our text says, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And as such, he, will not, he must not be misrepresented. Listen, folks, the greatest fear that I have in my ministry as an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to, it's not that I'll fall flat on my face with some pitiful attempt at preaching. I've been there, done that. It's not that I'll make some, uh, make some boneheaded life choice personally. Been there, done that. My greatest fear is that I will somehow, some way, in my preaching of the gospel, misrepresent God. And why is that? Because God is a jealous God. Let's look at an example of this in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Okay, what's Moses talking about here? Well, he's talking about in the Old Testament day, in the Old Testament ceremonial worship in the tabernacle, they worshiped, they had to worship exactly the right way as God laid it out. On the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest and only the high priest would go into the holiest of holies and he would offer sacrifice to the Lord, sprinkling the blood upon that mercy seat seven times. Now we've all read about that, we've all heard about that, we know about what happens there. And all of it is just beautiful pictures of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over and over and over again. But now on a day that should have ended with the glorious worship of Jehovah God, on that day instead it ended in the funeral of Aaron's two sons. Aaron, of course, was the high priest, the brother of Moses. Why did they die? What happened here? They died because of how they offered to the Lord. Let's turn back a few pages and look at this. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. And Nadib and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Someone says, I cannot believe. I cannot believe that God would just take the lives of his own people like that. It seems to us, it seems it's truly amazing. Now, remember, all of God's elect, redeemed, and born-again people are forever preserved in the blood of Christ. We have what's known as eternal security. What's it, uh, uh, um, John chapter 6 and verse 7 
says, all that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I shall no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, that all that he hath given me, I should raise nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Now, by the way, when you look at the verse, you look at the word it and, and nothing. He's actually talking about people there. That word it comes from the Greek word autos, and it simply means the same. So the very same ones that God the Father gave the Son in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world are the very same ones that will live in heaven one day. The Lord Jesus Christ will not lose a single one of them. All of God's people will be in heaven one day. Why? <laughs> because God is a jealous God. And he will not lose one of his, an object of his love. How does that sound to you this morning, that an object of God's love could burn in a devil's hell forever? Folks, just, just not true. Everyone that God loved, everyone that God chose before the foundation of the world, marked them out, wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, and said, these are my people. Every one of those same people, sometime between conception and death, will be born again of the Holy Spirit of God, unaided and unhindered by man. And it is for every one of those very elect people that God died because he loves them, that Christ died for because he loves them. And he won't lose a one of his. Nevertheless, it seems strange that God would take the lives of Nadib and Abihu instead of just warning them. I will say, well, you know, you messed up. It's a little bit warning. This is how important proper worship is, my beloved, to God in the Old Testament day. And make no mistake, the New Testament church has taken the place of the Old Testament ceremonial law service of that day. Understand that this event came at the beginning of the priestly ministry in the tabernacle. And God wanted all of his priests to understand the seriousness of their work. My beloved, when we come to worship on Sunday morning, it is indeed serious business. We come here for no other purpose than to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in spirit and in truth. And that's why we come. And that's why we do it right, because he demands it. And he deserves it, does he not? God also wanted all his people in that day to understand the seriousness of proper worship today, in that day. Then, verse three, then Moses said unto Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. See, God is telling Aaron through Moses, uh, through Aaron's brother Moses, that, that Aaron's sons had, that what they had done brought no glory to him. That's what he's saying to them. But they, 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 were, they were trying. They were doing the best they could with, with what the knowledge. Well, no, it's not. They had the knowledge of how to do it right. And so do we today. Again, this book is not hard to understand. We know exactly how we are to worship God in spirit and in truth because it's laid out for us right here in the New Testament Bible. It says, and Aaron held his peace. Try and understand that for a moment. Try and, try and put yourself in Aaron's place. He held his peace. Why? His, his two sons had just been destroyed by Jehovah God, and yet he held his peace. His sons, both priests themselves, were dead. 
the very Jehovah God that he worshiped, that he serves, took their lives. So, what's the lesson here? We have in our psalm book, a psalm book says the God that lived in the old times is just the same today as I said already. I appreciate Brother Gary's prayer. We should see him high and lifted up. Question, how important, how important really is it to, 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 to worship God correctly how important is the motive for this? The motive and manner in which we serve God in the church today. How important really is that? Folks, it means everything. Again, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this New Testament day has taken the place of the Old Testament ceremonial law service for proper worship that is acceptable to God. There's a lot of worship that we can do which may be perfectly acceptable to us and we may, we may get tremendous enjoyment out of it but is it acceptable to him? Why did they die? What happened here? They died not only because of how they offered before the Lord, but because of who they were or who they were not. You see, not just anyone could do the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Only he could go into the holiest place on all of earth. See, in the tabernacle, there, was, there, was, there were two veils. There was the courtyard, and then there was the veil that went into the holy place where all the priests did their daily ministrations and, 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 and their sacrifices. But then there was another veil further in, and that veil inside of it, and we talked about this before, was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and, and that was the holiest place on all of earth. And it was only once a year that the high priest could go in there to, 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 um, to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and it had to be followed exactly right. That was important. It was who they were. And by the same token, not just anyone can do is qualified to do the work of the minister of a gospel in the New Testament church. There are qualifications, my friends, that must be met. I think Brother Chris has talked about this already, preached on this about the qualifications of deacons and qualifications of ministers, and they're clearly stated in the New Testament. It's not ambiguous at all. It's simply in black and white. For one, gender. Oh, I know we're all getting already in troublesome, trouble ground here. We can't be, you know, one is gender. Women are excluded from this office. There's a lot of female preachers out there, but why do I say that? Well, for one thing, Paul says that a woman is to keep silence in the churches. One of the qualifications uh, uh, Paul gave as, as a minister in 1 in Timothy is that he is to be a God-called man, the husband of one wife. That's pretty simple to understand. Seems very difficult for so many to accept. We must do it right. However, the most important qualification of all is, is one that a man cannot in and of himself meet. Can't do it. The most important qualification of all is that a man be called of God to preach the gospel by God and not the other way around. Acts 20 and 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
Did you see that? Which hath made you overseers. It's God that makes men the overseers of churches. It's God that calls preachers. Now, a preacher can apply themselves or not apply themselves, one or the other, and not do very well in his ministry. But either way, it's God that calls them. They can't choose it. God chooses them. And that's the one qualification that no man can meet, even in and of himself. You know, over the years when people learned, you know, that, 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 I'm, that I'm a gospel minister, they invariably will ask, well, where did you study? What, what, what seminary did you go to? What divinity college did you go to? And when I, I say none, they simply say, well, how then can you possibly be a minister of the gospel? To which I answer that it's not a school which makes one's a minister. It's God that gives the gift and the church that recognizes it. Now, would a seminary help me in my ministry? <laughs> it might help with my sorrowful delivery. It might help with a lot of things. It might teach me to, to you know, to expound much better and, and, and what to study, all kinds of things. It might, it might help me, but it's likely, by the way, to do more harm than good. Some of these places, is, they, they, do, they spend more time try, trying, trying to teach us what the Bible doesn't mean than what it does. But the point being that it can never, ever help someone be a preacher. Only God can do that. Just like in the Old Testament day, only the high priest was to go into the holiest of holies. What else? What else was wrong here? What else did these two sons of Aaron do or not do correctly? Nadib and Abihu used the wrong instruments in their service. They used their own. You see, in front of the holy place, was it's a censer. Every priest had their own censer in which they would put the fire on, they would ground the incense on, and they would make a, a smoke would build up. They all had their own censers. The text says that it took either of them his censer, <coughs> his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon. Okay, so Nadib and Abihu, they were not high priests, but they were priests and they each had their own censer to perform in their ministerial duties. Here they use them rather than the censer of the high priest, which was sanctified by a special anointing of oil for that very purpose on that day, on that one special day. And in the same manner, let me say that the New Testament minister is to use the right instrument in his ministry. And that instrument is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. This is it. It's the divinely inspired and revealed word of the Lord God Almighty. And by the way, it must be the right sword. There's a lot can be said about which Bible we should use or which Bible we should read from. Let me say, and let me submit to you that the only acceptable modern day Bible for the New Testament church is an authorized version of a 1611 King James translation of the Holy Bible. And we could go into a, an hour-long sermon on why that's true, but it, it, it surely is. Notice I said an authorized version. If you actually wanted a 1611 King James translation, I've got one in my office, by the way, in the office, by the way, that anyone here is welcome to take it, look at it. Believe me, you won't understand half the words in it because it's written in old English. 
Well, the authorized version just changed the, uh, the words to more, I say more modern English that we can understand, but it didn't change anything else, not like other Bibles. This is, again, the only modern day transcript, the only one that was translated from copies of the original Textus Receptus, which the apostles uh, wrote themselves, okay? All other modern day versions come from a different corrupted translation. So it matters which sword we use. You get in conversation with somebody, you talk about uh, this, that, and the other thing, and you say, well, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says this. Oh, well, my well, one of the Bibles is right and one of them is wrong. And this is so easy to prove, to show. You can take your King James Bible, a dime store King James Bible, which, which by the way is the only one of these Bibles that has no copyright, no money is made off it. King James Bible and take the exact same text in another modern version and lay them side by side, the very same text, and they literally diametrically oppose one another. You can say this over and over and over again. So simply one of them must be the word of God and one cannot if they're so opposite. That's how important it is that when we study God's word and learn from God's word and practice in the church from God's word, it's the right word. It's the right Bible, it's the right translation. Again, why did they die? What else was wrong? They were the wrong people, they had the wrong instruments, they acted at the wrong time. They didn't do this on the Day of Atonement. They didn't do this on the one day of the year, the Jews call it Yom Kippur. They didn't do this on the one day of the year when only the great priest was, the high priest was supposed to go in. They did it at a, at a, at a different time. Remember what God would have t Moses tell Aaron about the timing of this special worship? Remember it said in Leviticus 16 and two, and the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. They came at the wrong time. This only happened once a year. And, by the way, for the New Testament church, even though the church can meet whenever it wants, the church, by the way, is perfectly at, at, at liberty to meet every single day if they want. But there's one day where the church must also meet, and that's Sunday morning, or Sunday. Sunday, my, my beloved, is the Lord's day. And there's a number of passages in the scripture we won't take the time to go to today that tell us that on the first day of the week, that's when God's people should meet. Now, however many to other times the church meets that's all fine and good that's all wonderful that's up to each individual church the church is all autonomous and it's perfectly perfectly honorable to god to meet as often as we can but we should never forsake sunday church that's the day that the lord has set aside for proper worship for him so how do we know if what we're doing right in our worship service, if what we're doing in our worship service is right, how do we know that? Well, again, it's in the Bible. For one thing, we must ask ourselves whether what we're doing, if we're, if we're changing the order of our practice or if we're just adding to it to help us worship better, whether, whether it's an aid for proper form or in addition to it, you see, there's a, there's a big difference between 
what aids us and what is in addition. One example here, of course, my brother Chris talked about this the other day, is, is, is songbooks. We've all got songbooks in our pews, right? right? And, and this is an example of the New Testament church. None in the New Testament church, there's no example of a songbook ever being used in the New Testament day. Why do we have them? It's not found in there. We, they didn't have them back then. Well, there is definitely instruction for us to sing. In fact, there's a lot of instruction for us to sing. And by the way, my beloved, it doesn't matter how bad you sing or can sing, how bad you sound, it sounds good to God. I had a church member once tell me, says, oh, when I sing, I make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And she meant that. Sure, her voice wasn't all that good, but she was singing to God. And it's, and it's something that we're to do. We're to, use, we're to use that instrument. That is not an addition to the worship service. That's an aid for it. That helps us to do what we're supposed to do. A songbook helps us to do what we're supposed to do, and that is sing. However, if we brought musical instruments in the church, piano or organ or any of these other such things, that would be an addition to their service, and that would not be acceptable to God. Why? Because no example for it nor command of it is found in the New Testament. You see, it's not that we in our lives are against these things. It's what honors God. And why is that important is what's acceptable to God because he's a jealous God and we must do it right. Lots of examples we could go into today, but we, won't, we don't have time for baptismal pools. Someone says, well, I was baptized in a river like, like, like Jesus, you know, and, and, and that's the way it has to be done. Well, you can be baptized here in this pool or in a swimming pool. Anywhere there's enough water to be baptized is fine because that's not an addition to the command to be baptized. It's an aid. This baptismal pool here is an aid for us to do what we are supposed to do, and that is baptized, baptized believers. But now, if we change that, and we did not fully immerse people, if we sprinkled them or any other such thing, that would be an addition. That would be a change that would not honor God. The baptism, my friends, is a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And full immersion is the mode simply because that's exactly what Christ did. He was buried and he arose. I'll never forget the, the day I was baptized. Elder, Elder Ronald Lawrence baptized me and he, he said, he baptized me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and he put me under the water. And baptism is a picture of the death and the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it's also a picture of something else. It's a picture of his resurrection. If the Lord had not rose again, that preacher might as well have just left me in the water to drown because I'd still have been in my sins. But my beloved, we're not in our sins because Christ arose out of that grave. And therefore, by picture, we rise up out of the water of the baptism and it's the way the Lord would have it in our worship service. Full immersion is the New Testament pattern. It's not an addition to it. A baptismal pool is an aid. Also, you know, we, may not, we need not venerate some things from the Old Testament ceremonial law service in this New Testament day. In other words, this pulpit here, this is not an altar. This is a book board. That, 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 that's what it is. There's nothing sacred about it. It's a book board. But by the same token, this meeting house today it, this, this beautiful meeting house, it's not a temple. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle, they had the temple, and everything had to be just right. In the New Testament day, this building's not a temple. You know what the temple is? 
you. You are the temple of God in this New Testament day. Romans 12 and 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We are to give our bodies to the Lord as a sacrifice. Our bodies are our temple. What does that mean? Well, that means that we're to keep our, ourselves, as Paul says, under subjection. In, in other words, we're, we're to do this to honor God. Okay, that means abstaining from fleshly lust, abstaining from fornication, gluttony, gluttony, oh, gluttony, drug use, alcohol use. We're to abstain from these uh, or, or abuse, I should say, anything that might defile our bodies, which are all, which are our temples to God in this New Testament day. And finally, they acted from the wrong motive. That's important. How we worship today, my beloved, is extremely important. The motive for it is as important as anything. You see, these two, these two young men, they were, they were seeking a modicum of glory and honor for themselves and not God. What does our text say? For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. May I submit to you, my beloved, this morning that the doctrine of grace demands, demands that God receive all the glory for man's eternal salvation. No one can claim that they had any part in it at all. Listen, multitudes of people today are serving him with the wrong motive. The Arminian doctrine of salvation by works demands that man take glory away from God. That's what it demands. I submit to you that this is one of the reasons why, why one can hardly tell any difference anymore between those, uh, uh, between the, those of, of modern-day people and, and those of modern-day churchgoers and those who attend church. We can hardly tell the difference anymore, it seems. And by the way, we as members of the Lord's Church, we're supposed to be different, aren't we? We're supposed to be living our lives as, 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 as close to the Lord as we can. We're supposed to be giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. We're supposed to be different than that. How are we doing? Hebrews 12 and 28. Wherefore, we receive in a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's important. We're to serve God with reverence and godly fear. We're to serve God acceptably. Listen, these two sons of Aaron, they, they knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew that they weren't using the right censor. They were... Knew, they knew that they weren't going in there at the right day. They knew that they shouldn't even be going in there at all. They were priests. They knew their own father was the high priest. They knew all these things. They knew their motive was wrong. They knew everything about that that was wrong, and yet they did it anyway. They were anointed priests whose father was a high priest. They could not claim ignorance in defense of their actions, my beloved, and neither can we. 
It's all right here in the book and it's easy to understand. We can't claim ignorance because it's simply laid out for us in plain old English. They disobeyed. They disobeyed and thereby sinned against Jehovah God and were subsequently killed for their disobedience. So what's the lesson here? When we mess up, is God going to strike us all dead? Well, there wouldn't be anybody in, the, in these pews if that, if, that, if that were the case. But how important, my friends, is the motive and the manner in which we serve God? It's everything. It is how do we see God today? Let me show you, take you to a place that shows how we should see God today. And again, Brother Gary mentioned some of this in his prayer this morning. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. I heard a, I heard a man give a, a little talk down at the trailer park uh, last year. Uh, he said the blessing, uh, a blessing over the food when we all gathered together. And he was, he was talking about how oftentimes, you, you know, people pray with their head bowed and they're, you know, in, in, in a, in a in a posture of, of, of submission, and, and he says, but in Scripture, God, uh, God's people all raise their hands when they, when they, when they, when they pray, and, they're, and it's all uplifting, it's raising their hands. I'm not sure he's read this here. And I was thinking, I wonder if he read about the Pharisee and the, pub, and the, and the publican. The publican wouldn't even look up to God in heaven, but he pounded his chest and said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the attitude we had to have, we should have before we come to God. We should have a desire to do exactly as he wants us to do, when he wants us to do it, where he wants us to do it, and how he wants us to do it, because he's a jealous God. Listen here, Jeho Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That's not a choo-choo train. That's the, that's the backside of a, of, a, of a wedding garment. And it filled the temple. You ever seen a, a wedding where the bride has that train trailing behind her and it's so large and so beautiful? Honestly, oftentimes it fills the entire middle row as, as she's walking down to be given away. That's what this is. But God's train, it filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the sound of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. That's, that's how we should look at God, my beloved, every day. We should look at God with reverence, mentally prostrating ourselves before him, saying, Lord, show me how to worship you correctly. Now, I said all this today to, to say one thing, that, that God is holy. He's not like a you or I. We can't come to God in just any way or any manner that we want. We want. We must come to God on his terms. The terms for the New Testament church for worship are laid out here in this book. They're not hard to understand. Oftentimes they're hard to accept, 
oftentimes it can be difficult to, to follow, but it's not difficult to understand. And if we're in the spirit, it's a joy to follow him. It's a blessing to follow him and worship him in the way that he commanded us because it will give us great joy. You know, the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says, is not meat nor drink, but it's righteousness, it's joy, and it's peace in the Holy Ghost. If you want that righteousness in your life, if you want that joy in your life, if you want that peace in, that, in, in, in our lives, then we ought to worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to follow him as the book says. Lest we make the mistake of misrepresenting God. Let us ever strive to love him. Let us ever strive to honor him. Let us ever strive to praise him and worship him in the way and manner, not that is necessarily pleasing to us, but that is acceptable and pleasing to him. Thank you so much this morning for your attention and may the Lord bless you all. If there's